This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Vic Galloway. I do programmes for the BBC and I'm a journalist and so on. It's a pleasure to be uh, your host tonight. Um, thank you to the Book Festival for inviting me to do this, but also for putting on this wonderful event every year. It just gets bigger and better every year. Uh, this is a sold-out show. You're the lucky ones. you got tickets. Um, this is going to be a, a really great event. Um, please welcome on stage Billy Bragg. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome. Billy is here to talk about this wonderful book, a uh, selection of lyrics, A Lover Sings. Uh, you will no doubt know all of the songs already. Um, as you can see by that well-placed guitar in the background, Billy's going to play some songs. Woo! Which is great. And uh, we're going to chat about um, songwriting, politics, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then I'll throw it over to you guys. If anyone's got a question, I'm sure you do already. If not, if you're storing one up, Make sure you get your hands in the air. We'll get a microphone to you, and you can ask Billy to explain a, a lyric or whatever. Anything that we haven't covered already. So, um, yeah, so think about your questions towards the end. We've got an hour to slot it all in, and then there will be a book signing. Billy will be uh, sat there drinking bottled beer, I think, and uh, enjoying your company and signing lots of uh, books for you. So stick around for that. Okay, um, I've got millions of questions. In fact, if we get through all of these, it might be a couple of days' worth. Um, first and foremost, although you have The Progressive Patriot, the, uh, your first book, how does it feel to have a, a book of... Well, that, I, I like the look of it. It looks like a poetry book, doesn't it? I was yeah. impressed with that when it came out. And um, they'd already done... They'd, Faber approached me. Uh, they'd already done one with Van Morrison and another one with uh, um, uh, Jarvis Cocker. And uh, they sent me these two books. Van Morrison, uh, I think Ian Rankin wrote the, the text for the Van Morrison book. Uh, but Jarvis has, had annotated his. And I thought that might be an interesting thing for me to do. Not just to um, really to write about the songs, but really to put some of the songs into context. I don't want to inter interfere with anyone's conception of what the song means, because that's a personal thing. But the nature of my songwriting uh, has, has often been very topical. And some of the things I was writing about, I mean, looking at some of the songs, you know, references to people like Gennady Gerasimov in, in one of my love songs. Who Gennady Gerasimov? I had to look him up on, on, uh, <laughs> on Google. So, uh, so it, could, it could, I mean, it's called A Lover Sings, but it could be subtitled A Potted History of Late 20th Century Left-Wing Politics as well, because mm -hmm. I, I sort of, I, you know, I try to think about someone coming, you know, Coming to it now, what, what, how would the songs make sense to them? And in terms of you know, rock and roll song lyrics, pop song lyrics, uh, do, they, do they stand up as poetry, do you think? Or are they two different things? I think they're two different things. I do think they're two different things. And I think um, the thing about poetry is it's something that um, you, you can uh, deeply experience uh, um, as an individual. You don't need to be in a crowd to, to have a poet 
you know, touch you and move you. My favourite poetry, you know, I just have to sit somewhere quiet or even on the tube somewhere and read it. Whereas with a song lyric, you know, it's best experienced live in a crowd, that moment where everyone's singing together. That's, that's a slightly different thing. And you're trying to, with a, with a song, I think, you're trying to, to get that across. You don't have so much freedom uh, as you do with, with a, in a poem. You know, you can't... You, you're working with meter and rhythm very often. You know, not always. Obviously, it is possible to go beyond that, but generally speaking. So I think there, there is a difference. And I think um, it may be the difference between painting and photography mm -hmm. in some ways. You know, they're both arts, but, but the, 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 uh, the, the painter has the time of the poet has with you, whereas the photographer is trying to hit you first. As soon as you hear that hit, hook, bang, you're in. And songwriting more of a communal thing rather than a sort of insular, personal thing. Well, it's not, I've got some songs I love that are insular and personal to me that take me to a very personal place. But um, the thing about songs is you can be in a supermarket and one comes on over the PA and all of a sudden, you, you know, it's like an arrow goes right through your heart. You don't often encounter someone in, in Morrison's reading out Seamus Heaney. Yeah, right. Or maybe you do in Edinburgh, I don't know. Maybe you move in more... Literary circles, but uh, so there's those. They're two, they're two, side, possibly, two, yeah. two, yeah, two slightly different things in that sense. I think. Yeah, and um, tell us about you know your first poems, your first songs. You know, you read a poem out on the radio. I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I sort of. Um, everybody writes poems when they're at school. You, you know, you have to write poems for homework. And I, just like everybody else, I did that. And for some reason, I don't know, all my mates stopped. I didn't, I just kept doing it. And then I learned how to play the guitar. The kid next door taught me how to play guitar. And um, I, I found a way to, uh, to express myself in a way that I, you know, I felt was, was valid and uh, gave me a, a sense of engaging in the world. And yeah. so who, who were you admiring as, as a lyricist or a poet? I mean, who did you look up the to first, and influenced you? The first lyricist who really hooked me in was Paul Simon. Uh, specifically The Boxer, which I heard when I was 11 years old. I know I was 11 years old because I was on a school trip to Holland and it was playing on the radio in the bus while we were driving around Holland. And there was something about that song and those lyrics and that melody that really drew me in. So we never had a record player when I was a kid. Um, we had a, my father, my parents bought me a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine, which, which weighed a ton. But um, the great thing was that all the... All the Boys in my class, almost all of them had older sisters who had great record collections. So I would go around their houses, and at the time, Simon and Garfunkel were very popular among sort of winsome schoolgirls mm -hmm. uh, in the sixth form. They were all in the sixth form, my mates, big sisters, they were very smart. So, uh, and, but Leslie Charman, Leslie Charman had uh, Motown Chartbusters volumes four, five, and six. <laughs> so she, unbeknownst to her, Leslie, Paul, Paul let me come round and tape all of. Uh, all of Leslie's records. With so, your reel to reel. Yeah, with oh, my wow. reel to reel. Not only did we take Excellent. them, we had to stay absolutely silent while it was going on. So, <laughs> there is a bit in uh, this old heart of mine by the Four Tops where, where Paul Chalmers dad comes in and tells him his tea's ready, <laughs> and some squeaky little kid says, "All right, Dad." <laughs> so it's all, uh, uh, yeah. So that was kind of, you know, when I think about people, you know, piracy and stealing songs. You know, the first music I own, I stole. I stole it off Leslie Charman. <laughs> and off of, uh, obviously, off of Berry Gordy at Tamla Motown. But those songs meant so much to me. I bought Char 
Tom Motown chart busters. Probably bought it a dozen times. Barry mm. Gordy got his bloody money in the end, you know. Yeah. So let's not worry about people sharing music. You know, that's how we get around, you know. Yeah. That's why people want to go to gigs now, because they want, you know, they've been hooked by hearing a song. And now they want to, you know, hear, get some more of that. It's a, a song is kind of like a, a window to, to your soul. And if they see something, if, if uh, someone hears a song and you, you in that find something that, that connects with you, and that's what you're hoping for as a writer of any sort, I guess, then you want to find out more about this person. What else do they have in common with you? Or don't they? Maybe they don't, you know. And so what's, what's, what's strange about that? You, they might take you, invite you into a world you've never been into before. So I think songwriting, probably all art really, um, opens that, that possibility. But definitely for me, songwriting took me to a different place from where I was and in my background. you know, Simon and Garfunkel, it's, it's a beautifully harmonic, mm. well-produced, sweet yeah. sound. Yeah. Dylan was m possibly the next thing that yeah. really pulled you in and yeah. sort of gave you the, the sense that you could do it yourself. Well, I, mean, I think the, the thing about Dylan was that um, I, I didn't have an older brother to sort of turn me on to that, or sister to turn me on to that. So I kind of came to him in, in 1972 when he was neither here or there. He kind of disappeared off the, the sort of like the... Um, the event horizon and um, this is because Graham Patton's sister actually how I got into Bob Dylan because <laughs> Graham Patton wanted to give his sister a copy of the Jackson 5's greatest hits which I had and he offered to swap my copy of the Jackson 5's greatest hits for his dad's copy of The Times They Are Changing <laughs> by Bob Dylan which was the original copy the vinyl was about as thick as that table and uh, that really blew my mind. If you're familiar with that album at all, it's absolutely stark. It's just Dylan and his guitar. It's so visceral. And I think um, my experience, as and I probably was 14 when I first heard that record, might be similar to the previous generation, how they experienced the blues. You know, when you hear people like Keith Richards talking about the first time they heard Elmore James, it was so raw. Mm -hmm. Dylan sort of opened up that to me. And so I became the weird kid in the class who knew Bob Dylan songs. You know, when Rod Stewart recorded uh, um, Tomorrow is a Long Time, all the Rod Stewart kids wanted to ask me about it. And uh, uh, somebody else, Nazareth, recorded something by, you know, I was that weird kid. I didn't really have any, any other uh, sort of Bob Dylan mates. Everybody else in my class was either into Alice Cooper or, uh, right. or, or Emerson Lake and Bleeding Palmer. Sorry, they were tough days. They were tough times, I tell you. Those proggy, those proggy busts. We're just going to come to punk. Yeah, thank God punk turned up. So I'll tell you when punk, when punk turned up. I'll tell you when punk. I'll tell you exactly when it is. I'll tell you when it is. It's Greg Lake on um, London Weekend's Today programme being interviewed in a football stadium saying there is absolutely no American influence in our music. It's all European. And when I heard him say that, I thought, right, so there's no black influence in your music. Right, mate, okay. That's how we're going to do it, is it? It's going to be like that, is it? Mm. You get eradicating the black tradition of music from your music that's not on mate yeah. that's not on and punk starts now get yeah. me uh, that's right get rid of me flare trousers get me a haircut but the thing is you know people, get me a plastic leather jacket people people will see and you, you know your music will be synonymous with dylan and with the clash and punk and those kind of influences but your favorite album certainly growing up and possibly still is was motown chart busters yeah. volume, volume five i mean what a great record volume five sorry. yeah yeah volume five yeah it's the one that starts with uh, tracks of my tears i mean perhaps the greatest three trick uh, three three chord trick of all time I mean, you know I mean, Bob Dylan famously said Smokey Robinson is the greatest poet in America and uh, I do subscribe to that to that idea I mean I think uh, th the weird thing is I mean I didn't I didn't learn 
politics at all growing up. I mean, I lived in a, uh, a borough where the Labour Party have been in power since, you know, it was, the borough was created in 1931. So there wasn't very much politics going on when I was a kid. It was just same old, same old. But listening to Motown was, was kind of really what politicised me as much as listening to Bob Dylan because between uh, Motown Chartbusters Volume 3 and Motown Chartbusters Volume 5, something happens because when you get to Volume 5, the Jackson 5 are followed by uh, Edwin Starr, War. You know, and then you've got uh, uh, Stevie Wonder followed by Ball of Confusion by The Temptations. Then you've got The Supremes, you know, Up the Ladder to the Roof, followed by Abraham, Martin and John by, by uh, Marvin Gaye. Something has happened, clearly something has happened between the releasing of those two greatest hits albums. What has happened is Dr. King has been assassinated, the civil rights movement has moved onto the streets more, and, and I'm kind of picking that vibe up. From, from these songs as much as I ever picked up anything from The Clash, mm -hmm. you know? So that, that political edge in 60s American soul music was hugely informative for my generation. Yeah, and uh, well, it, it's clear throughout your, your catalogue of albums and all your songs that there is that balance between the sort of political, the polemic and the, the heartfelt, the, the yeah. romance, the, you know, you know, the love of life. Yeah. And, it, and it sort of infiltrates both sides. Yeah. Um, Quickly, we'll, we'll, Punk, tell us about that seismic change and, and what that, that effect had on you, because you, you, by that point you were already making yeah, music. Yeah, I was always, uh, well, you know, we were sort of in, we were knocking around and, and I was very fortunate in that my parents went to a lot of, they were big fans of, uh, they loved to go to dances, ballroom dancing. They really, so they went out a lot at the weekends, they were often out at dances. And um, so, me and the kid next door and the kid round the corner who played drums used to get the run of the house. And the guy next door didn't complain because we weren't in his back room, we were in our back room. So we were playing, you know, Stones and Faces stuff and, you know, we were influenced by uh, early R&B, bit of Who. And we were writing songs as well. Uh, but then one day we went to see the jam and there was something about the jam that we, we really sort of touched onto our experience. But it took us to see The Clash before we could really understand that, that we could do this. Mm -hmm. Because the thing about The Clash was they were doing all the things that we liked about the Rolling Stones, except they were our age. And, and you, whatever artistic thing you do, you need that moment where you, you suddenly see someone doing whatever it is you want to do and you realise that you could do that too. It's almost like a sort of finger of inspiration. And the thing particularly with punk was that the, the whole ethos was do it yourself. You know, you don't have to wait for someone to tell you you're in a band, you get in a band. You don't have to wait for someone to tell you, you know, what you want to read. Make your own fanzines, you know. Mm -hmm. Don't wait for someone to design your pair of trousers. Make your own clothes. That, and that do-it-yourself ethos, I, I'm kind of, I still stay true to that as much as I can, you know. Yeah. Without designing the trousers, obviously. I mean, yeah. Still got your plastic far. leather jacket? No, sadly, my plastic leather jacket. <laughs> I think I gave to the girl in the post office in Oundle. Right. <laughs> I think, I think that's what happened to it. What, what about, cause, well, during the punk sort of time, you had a band, Riff Raff. Yes, in Andal. We'll yeah. Back to Andal, yeah, yeah. Um, but what about the first Billy Bragg songs? I mean... Well, the first Billy Bragg songs, like, technically, say. of the songs that I sing, the oldest one is probably Richard, which belongs to Jane. But I actually wrote New England while I was still in Riff Raff. Mm -hmm. But the next day, I wrote another song called The Kitten, which was kind of like... Uh, New England, but sort of better, in terms of playing in a band. So when the band fell apart um, in, in, in 1979, 1980, 
um, and I was looking for some songs to sing and that was one of the ones that that was knocking around that was sort of like hadn't been played and was boxed fresh so and it, and it kind of like it, there's something about New England it just works better being played solo mm -hmm. in some ways you know that sort of like uh, that that uh, uh, rhythmic aspect of it. I was the rhythm guitar player in this band. I was, I'm not technically, I'm not much of a guitar player. And so actually uh, New England is just a rhythm part of another song, a much bigger song. You just don't hear the other part. I'm the sort of rhythm guitar player in the band that you wouldn't actually hear what I was playing until I stopped doing it. <laughs> and then people say, oh, hang on, what's that? Oh, it's gone now, it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> that was me. It's a terrible thing, really, because my son, who's a much better guitar player than me, when he was younger, um, we were driving somewhere and he, uh, he heard uh, in the car, I had a CD with Another Girl, Another Planet by the, the Only Ones. And he said, wow, Dad, what's that? I said, oh, you know, he said, could I play that? I said, yeah, it's easy. It's just, um, it's just uh, the boys are back in town, inverted by Finley's. It is, technically it is. It's a, so we went home and I showed him how to play it and he said, okay, now show me the, the, the lead guitar part. This is very early on in his guitar and I said, uh, I can't do that. He said, what? I said, I can't, I can't show that. I'm not, I, I'm not that kind of guitar player. I could see myself shrinking in his estimation. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean you're not? I thought you were a guitar player. I said, I'm not that kind of guitar player. So fortunately, because he's, been well, he's a well brought up boy, he's really into the Ramones. Right, that's his first band. First thing I ever, the only, only song I ever taught him how to play was Blitzkrieg Bop. Ever the rest of it, he's worked out himself. But so, as I'm shrinking in his est estimation, I say to him, "Have you ever heard Johnny Ramone play lead guitar?" He said, "No, I haven't." Done. I said, "Well, that's the kind of guitar player I am. <laughs> I'm like Johnny Ramone, okay? So that's uh, <laughs> and that's the truth. That is the honest truth. I'm really, you know, I'm not really a musician. I'm a guitar player, and if I." find something I like, I don't worry about how it fits together and why we do that, and uh, I just do it, and, that, and that, it's, if it sounds good, it probably is good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, can we have maybe one of the early yes. songs? Well, yeah. Let's have a song, shall we? Yeah, um, choose one from... Okay, I will, off the top of my head. Yes. Yeah. So which one's I can remember, that's the thing. I was in a field in Germany last night playing to 3,000 slightly drunk Lower Saxons. <laughs> it was in Nieder Saxon, Lower Saxony. And uh, they'd had a rather wet weekend. And unfortunately, they'd had a, a soggy weekend. But I was playing in a tent, so they were very happy to, to come and see me. Somewhere in, I've got a plectrum in here amongst all these euros in my pocket. I hope I have. Yes, I have. Brilliant. <laughs> It's that summer of the evening Get ready and roll the cassettes There's boys outside preaching genocide And trying to think up some sort of threat And the ladies in the cloakroom Take no notice of me I wish myself was back at home But there's nothing safe in watching TV There's something born tomorrow that I lost while I was out for a drink How many gangs is it gonna take To change the way I think It takes more than good intentions And a big bloke on the door 
That's never the same after the first time. It doesn't stop them coming back for more. Fighting in the dance halls happens anyway. Sometimes it makes me stop and think. Sometimes it makes me turn away. Sometimes it makes me stop and think. Sometimes it makes me turn away. Sometimes I want to stop and think, but most times I have to run away. Hey. All right. So, um, what comes first when you write a song? Do you have the lyrics written down, or is it the tune that, that starts first? I know it's different for everyone, and it's probably different each time you do it. It is. It's, you know, I wish, I wish there was a straight way of doing it, where you just sort of sat down there and did it, but it's never, never that way for me. Sometimes I have an idea, and it comes straight out, and there it is on paper. Other times I've got a, a, a tune that I play every time I sit down with a guitar and I write some lyrics and I know they're not the right lyrics. I mean, I, I had a song that I must have had it for five years, trying lyrics on it and none of them worked. And eventually I, I managed to write um, a lyric called uh, Wish You Were Her and it really fit the, the tune. Um, and uh, other times I'm, I've just got a couple of lines where I have a, a moment of inspiration and um, you never know where that moment's going to come. You know, I, I, uh, the week that um, the Millie Dowler story broke, uh, which was, uh, it was a, it must have been mid-July, I, I had a gig in a, in a uh, school playground in a suburb of Leeds. It was a folk festival, me and Hugh Masakela for a little while. I can't remember the name of the folk festival now, but it was basically in a, in a housing estate in a school playground it was a lovely little festival and I had to drive from my home in in uh, West Dorset up past uh, through the Midlands cross over to the A1 and up to Leeds and it was the first weekend the schools were off so that traffic on the M5 was atrocious it was atrocious getting around uh, Birmingham I was just all the time stop start stop start and I listened to Radio 4 a lot and it was just and, and five live it was just all discussions about Millie Dalla, and it was actually it was actually the day that Murdoch announced he was going to close the News of the World on Sunday. So all this was going on, and before I got to Birmingham, I'd already got a line in my head. This this sort of trying to trying to make some sense of it, and who's got who's got a moral high ground here? And I sort of came up with this this line: "Scousers never buy the sun." And I kind of had this line in my head, and it kind of has a tune to it, you know, as a sort of "Scousers never buy it." I kind of had a tune. And I started, I, I don't remember what it was actually, it was, I have a song called It Says Ear, which is about the, the tabloids. And I was thinking, I'll be clever and I'll write a couple of new lines for this and I'll play it at the weekend. So I'd had a couple of ideas, but these ideas started, they took a life on their own. Every time the traffic stopped, I had to get my phone out and say some more lines in, in, in there. And I, and I got to my hotel in Leeds, uh, I switched on the telly and... and there was, it was on Newsnight, Steve Coogan was arguing with this oily geezer from the sun. And it was just like outrageous, you know, listening to this guy justifying what they had done. So I wrote some more. And then I woke up the next morning with more, even more. And so, you know, I, I thought I'd finish writing this song, but this song wasn't letting me go. You know, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't sleep for want of having to get up and write this song. I've no control over this process. 
And then, fortunately, when I went down to do the sound check before the festival opened, the PA didn't work properly. So I had played this song about a dozen times. So by the time I did the gig, I was kind of up to speed. It wasn't like something where I was going to go and play it tentatively. I could actually play it with conviction. And I played it with conviction that night, and the audience reaction was just amazing. I mean, they cheered every end, because that, that line, Scouser's Never by the Sun, kind of, it finishes each line. And every, every line, they cheered it. And it's never happened again or since. I mean, people generally get the first line, but I couldn't understand what, what was going on, what had made that happen. And my theory is that I had, in that week, where, where people were so disgusted by, by uh, what the news of the world had done in hacking a, a, a dead girl's answer phone, by singing that song on that, on that night, on that Saturday night, I, I was giving that community the first opportunity to express as a community, their revulsion. Any, you know, their individual sense of anger, they may not have expressed, but the song, by playing it at that moment, it, it kind of like burst a, a, like a, I suppose like a boil of, of anger. And they really were, it's one of those songs where you end the song and you know the audience is still wound up, they're not letting go of it. And I had to ramp up the songs and, you know, bang, bang them out to get to the end of the set rather than just sort of, you know, go out with a few ballads and sort of touch. It's, it's strange, those nights are really, really strange, where you, you know you've got a job to do. I was at uh, Glastonbury, uh, played the night that the Brexit uh, result came through, and the, the, yeah, the audience was so wound up then in the left field, the place was packed. I went on stage, they made the noise they usually make when I come off, when I went on. <laughs> and they were just... the, the, the the anger there, and my job that night was to to make them feel that they're not the only person who feels like that. To reflect back on them, their sense of of frustration, that sent their feeling that they live in a country that they don't feel part of anymore. With you know, any of us who've woken up the morning after Margaret Thatcher won an election know how that feels. <laughs> for those youngsters at Glastonbury, this was a new experience for them, and I was very fortunate in and I had the the privilege to be able to stand on the stage and try and and allow them to express their anger, but also to give them an opportunity to to not you know feel that we're, we're done for, that we're gonna we're gonna go forward, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna you know move forward from this. So so music can do that. Not you can't do it every night, mm -hmm. but there are certain times if you sing the right songs and you say the right things and you're on the right day. The next gig I did was the, the night of the Chilcot inquiry. That was the next one. So... Well... I was, I was glad to have a night off, actually, when nothing I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember those few weeks when it was like, oh, fuck, I can't believe this. Can't believe... One of the kids, one of the, one of the guys at, uh, at left field the next morning, I saw him, he was so down. I'm like, man... It's okay, it's not going to be... He said, no, Bill, no, no, no. He said, I've got four songs that mention David Cameron. <laughs> I said, look, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Look, David Cameron, see that thing there? David Cameron, you're going to be okay. You know why? What's going to happen next? Boris Johnson. <laughs> he was like, Bill, you've saved my life. I haven't seen him since that week. I don't know how he's doing with... Theresa May doesn't quite scan, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. 
Well, we've, we've touched upon the, the personal versus the political. Did you set out when you became Billy Bragg, the songwriter, the solo artist, did you sort of imagine or did you have a sort of ethos of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write political songs? No, not really, no. And what is the point of a political song? Discuss. I think I'll better play one first. Let me play one. Yeah. I've got the urge. Yeah, yeah. Let me just try that. Let me try that while I'm in the mood. While I've got one on. Gives me a chance to see if I can answer that question. What is a political song? God, shit, you have to answer these days. <laughs> you know, this was Twitter. I'd have blocked him by now. You know. <laughs> yeah, right, mate. They're the worst emails I get these days. Dear Billy, I'm doing a PhD. <laughs> what can you do? What can you do? Someone's hiding in the bushes with a telephoto lens While they're added to shows and the means justify the ends Cause we only hunt celebrities, is all a bit of fun But the Scousers never buy the sun and the parents of the missing girl cling desperately to hope While a copper takes improper payments in a big brown envelope And no one in the newsroom asks where's this headline from Scousers never buy the sun Tabloids make their money betting bullshit baffles brains And they cynically hold up their hands if anyone complains And they say, all we're doing is giving people what they want Well they're crying out for justice And people crying out for justice And the man they call the digger Cast a proprietary eye over what happens in the gutter And what goes on in the sky And he claims he's fit and proper And the watchdog sings his song But the Scousers never buy the sun International executives, they hang their heads in shame And tell us with their hands on hearts The paper boys to blame But you who love that kiss and tell You must bear some guilt as well Scousers never buy the sun Tabloids make their money betting bullshit baffles brains And they cynically hold up their hands if anyone complains And they say, all we're doing is giving people what they want Or they're crying out for justice People crying out for justice in the corridors of power they all sit down to sup with the devil and his minions 
And they ask for his opinions And the politicians wring their hands And cry what's to be done But the Scousers never buy the sun No one comes out looking good When all is said and done But the Scousers Never by the sun. Justice for the 96. Woo. Thought of an answer yet? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I get asked this one a lot, obviously. So it's, it's one of those ones that you do, you know, you do have to. We live with a legacy. We live with a legacy of the 60s with regard to protest songs, political songs. You know, we live with the idea that music can change the world. And it comes from the 1960s because that generation had seen their world changed by people like Elvis Presley mixing black music with white music. They'd seen those cultural barriers broken down in their lifetime and they thought that perhaps the political barriers could be broken down as well. And why wouldn't they think that? You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't know that the power of the state would confront them as it did in Chicago in 1969, in, Par in, in Paris in 68 when young people really did try to actually politically change the world and, uh, and, and, and they were uh, swept aside by, by the, uh, the forces of reaction. So, music can't change the world. And I speak as someone who's tried his damned hardest. Okay, to that, but it can do some incredible things and we all know that. We all know that emotionally it, it charges us up. We all know that it, that, it, that it gives us something that we don't get from just everyday conversation, you know. So what does music do? What does it do? Well, I can tell you what I'm trying to do when I'm singing a song. I'm trying to join the dots in a different way for you. I'm trying to give you a different perspective. That's what music did for me initially. It gave me a different perspective on the world, one that I didn't see in the mainstream media. That's something I've always tried to do. I'm trying to bring people together to express their solidarity, maybe, to raise some money for, a, for an issue, you know but also to make you feel that you're not alone. You know, you may, you may live in a, or work in a, a situation where there's a lot of casual racism, casual sexism, homophobia. Um, to be in an audience singing together a song like Sexuality or There's Power in a Union, everyone's singing it together, it recharges your, your activism, I hope, because it, I can assure you it recharges mine uh, completely. But over the years, I've come to realise, actually, that there's something else that music can do that's, that's, that's really, really important. And that is, music can make you, uh, make you feel empathy for people you don't know, that you've never met, whose situation, you've, you've, you feel that there's a wrong situation, you want to do something about it. So my job is to cut through the everyday cynicism that we 
shield ourselves with because we can't feel all the time because it would be like we were naked all the time and it would be like painful. So that, that cynicism that allows us to just get on with our day-to-day -day stuff without worrying about everything. My job at the gig is to cut through that shield that you all have. I have it too. I have it too. And find that, that empathy and to find you know, that common feeling. That's, because that's what music at a gig does. It's a, it's, it's a form of communion whether it's a political song or a love song, to, 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 to stand with a thousand people and sing that song that you love so much with the people that wrote it on stage and you're all singing it together, that is such a, a, a fabulous feeling because whatever emotions that you have invested in that song, the, the thousand people singing it and the people who wrote it are all singing it together, you're, whatever those emotions are, whatever they are, those emotions are completely accepted by everybody in the room. Whatever it is you feel, you're completely justified in feeling. There's not many other places you can do that anymore. You certainly can't do it on the internet. You know, so this is why people want to still come to gigs. This is why people are gathering together. To, you know, you can get music for nothing now. It's free, you know, but people, more and more people want to come to gigs to get that communion. And, and I think that the music has always done these things. They're not specific things. You can't measure how music does this, but it clearly, I know from personal experience that, that music has, has given me a different perspective on the world. Uh, it's been a political education to me. Yeah, well, I mean, when you first broke through early 80s, yeah. off the back of punk, and you've mentioned the, the 60s and all the yeah. seismic sort of cultural changes that were happening, it was a politically charged yeah. atmosphere, and your songs and Red Wedge and so many other kind of movements, two-tone, etc., the, 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 the anarcho-punk stuff, mm -hmm. crass, etc., mm -hmm. these were all happening simultaneously, and there were all sorts of other cultural sort of um, changes happening. It feels like we're in that kind of a similar time now, and yet I'm not really hearing the, the protest songs. Or I know they're out there, and I'm, I'm probably better equipped than most to hear them, but I don't hear them in the same... Yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah, there's a reason. For I, was, I wanted to know your, your opinion on that. When I was 19 years old and I felt angry about the world, I only had one medium available to me to express that anger. I had to buy one of these, learn how to play, write songs, and get on stage and do gigs. Otherwise, m my voice wasn't going to be heard. Now, if you're 19 and you've got a mobile phone, you can probably make a film and edit it on that. Never mind, write a blog, you know, record your songs, and, and you know. Everybody now, everybody can, can take part in, in debates now. Everybody can be part of it. But the problem is that, that the, the internet has um, superseded music. Uh, you know, in the 20th century, music was our only social medium. Yeah, you know, and, and what has happened is, you're right, people are still writing political songs, but young people aren't coming to listen to music, to get their ideas. You know, mu mu music was the way that we spoke to one another then. It was the way we spoke to our parents' generation. We discussed politics in the, in the four weekly music papers that there were. I mean, think about it, four weekly music papers, and we, that's where we had our discussions, you know. So what has happened, the reason why you don't hear songs, although they're still being made, is music no longer has a vanguard role in youth culture. Yeah. And, you know, on the plus side, that means more people can take part in the debate, more people can speak, more people can write books. You know, we know that now, you know, book, uh, authors, more, many more authors now because the whole thing's opened up and it's the same with music as well. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that it's, it's worth going down that more creative path when you, when you think about your anger, to write a book 
or to make a film or to write a song because nobody is going to ever invite you to tour the United States of America and read out your tweets. <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate, it's true. Except maybe Donald Trump's tweets, <laughs> which are taking on a terrible Shakespearean tone, like some terrible tragedy now. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are people making great music and making great art still, but, but it just, the music just doesn't have that vanguard role. I was trying to talk to someone yesterday about it, 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 in the 20th century, with regard to music, it was as if you were standing by a great river and stuff came by and you were able to reach out and catch it or get on it and go down a river on it. Now, it's like you're on a vast ocean and you're only seeing the stuff that's around you. You're not even seeing the stuff that's deep under you. Mm -hmm. You know, before you could gather around a waterhole like the John Peel show and hear great music. All right, after stuff you played, you might think it was shit, but uh, other half you think... You know, what do you, what do you expect? It's like 90% of the shit that's on during the daytime. It's, you know, so, so Peel gave you somewhere to gather and there aren't those gathering places anymore. You know, the music's out there, but, but they're not, you know. No, it's, I mean, the, the internet is a morass of good stuff and bad. Mm. Um, but having said that, political activism has really sort of come of age in a, in a, in a different way in, with the internet, the Yes campaign being a good example of that, and uh, in Scotland, and also, you know, the Corbynistas mm. using, um, the internet to sort of rally people yeah. and spread the message. Mm. Um, is this the way then? Uh, uh, is the political song, is the song kind of like old fashioned now? Are we going to look at songwriting as, in, in a way that some people perhaps look at classical music or jazz as some sort of yesterdays? I don't think so. I think music will still have a role to play. Um, but I don't think it will be the, 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 the prime way in which people uh, get, their, get their information, you know. I do think, you know, I read people like, I see people like Owen Jones and, and those kind of young people. They, you know, 30 years ago, he would have needed to form a synthesizer duo in order to get those, get, he looks get those like words. He looks like he could probably play the synthesizer. Yeah, I've, so him and Laurie Penny, I think, would make a great sort of goth synth, you know. <laughs> yeah. so, so there's that, you know, there's, there's, those, there's those opportunities. But um, I think it's, the thing about the, the, the as, as all, you know, as all media, you depending on how you use it. I mean, if you're just going on on the internet to have to argue with people, you're not going to get very far. But you know, if you're if you're trying to um, gather evidence to join the dots, and you have an opportunity to offer a different perspective, you know, um, should I should I now you know write a song about what I think is happening with Corbyn, or should I or should I write a, a sort of like a thousand words for Facebook? Mm -hmm. Probably I should write a thousand words for Facebook because by the time I get around to recording the song about Corbyn, and, and you know, it's sort of like it's the cool will be over yeah, and they'll yeah, be replaced. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. in some ways, the immediacy of trying to make sense of it is there. Whereas with something like Never By the Sun, you're talking about a, a much broader thing uh, that you're, you're trying to reflect on the way you feel and how, uh, you know, you think that, that works. It's hard to write songs about constant leadership challenges. Yeah. And, uh, well, should we, should we talk a bit about Corbyn and, and, and the current political climate, but have a, have a song first? Maybe, yeah. I think perhaps we should yeah. do that. I think we really should. Do you want me, should I play you the most political song I'll play at the moment? Would you like to hear that? Yeah. Mm. Right. I'm glad you said that. Because it's a song that could be a, it could be a political song, it could be a love song. I think our best Billy Bragg songs to me are the songs that are, that overlaps in either one or t'other. Tell you that this is a song. Uh, this is a song about my partner, and 
how I feel about her, or I could tell you that this song is about my faith in your ability, that's you, the audience, your ability to change the world, because I find myself having to tell audiences not to expect me to change the world, to make it absolutely explicit. That uh, I think it's worthwhile, because in these political times, you get that sort of, you know, tell us what it's all about stuff. It doesn't work like that. I wish it did. It would save me a lot of grief. But um, if you could just mute me up there for a second. But the, uh, the key thing behind this song is, is my realisation that the enemy of all of us who want to make the world a better place is not actually capitalism or conservatism. It's actually cynicism is our greatest enemy. And not the cynicism of the Daily Mail, because that's, their, that's how they make a living, by dropping cynicism into the political discourse. The cynicism that is our greatest enemy, those of us who want to make the world a better place, is our own cynicism. Our own sense that nothing ever changes, our own sense that nobody gives a monkeys about stuff, our own feeling that all politicians are the same, you know. And we all feel like that from time to time. I certainly do. Uh, but I'm fortunate in that when I feel like that, I write a song about it, come out here, sing it in the dark, you all clap, and I don't feel half so bad about it anymore. <laughs> in that sense, it's like therapy. But um, but one of the things that, and I'm, I'm not being flippant when I say this, is that it is my, the way the audiences react to these ideas that makes me keep doing this and writing these songs. Because I still get that, that response, that, that positive response at the right spots. I think if I was singing these songs and it was just like, mm, 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 I'd think to myself, well, you know, I'm just going to do something. I'll go and write books again or something like that. But my faith in the audience's ability to change the world and will to do that is, is undiminished after 33 years of doing it. So this is the most political song I play. And I'll dedicate it to you with respect. It's called I Keep Faith. If you want to make the weather And you have to take the blame If sometimes dark clouds fill the sky And it starts to rain And folks complain And though your head may tell you to run and hide Listen to your heart And you'll find me Right by your side Because I keep faith I keep faith I keep faith, I keep faith in you, yes I do, I keep faith in you. If you think you have the answer, don't be surprised. If what you say is met with anger, and contempt and lies No matter how hard you may want to Just walk away 
reach out, you'll find me there beside you all of the way because I keep faith I keep faith I keep faith I keep faith in you yes I do I keep faith in you all the dreams we shared never knew someone who cared about these things the way that I've seen you it doesn't matter if this all falls off the cliff together we are gonna see it through I know it takes a mess of courage to go against the grain. You have to make great sacrifice for such little gain and so much pain. And if your plans have come to nothing, Washed out in the rain Let me rekindle all your hopes And help you start again Because I keep faith In these troubled times I keep faith in these uncertain days I keep faith I keep faith in you Yes I do, I keep faith In every single one of you I keep faith in you Yes I do, I keep faith In every single one of you I keep faith in you Yes I do, I keep faith in you I keep faith in you I keep faith Whoa. in every one of you, yeah. Woo. That's my message. That was fantastic. That's um, my message. People used to ask me that in the 1980s, particularly in America. What is your message, Billy Bragg? And I always said the same thing. I said, buy my records. <laughs> Stupid question, stupid answer. Sorry. Have you got faith in Jeremy Corbyn then? Do you, do you, are, you, are, you, are you with him? My sense of things is that we're in a period of transition here, I think. Uh, Vic will be the best way to explain that. <laughs> I think you've got to see Corbyn uh, as, as just the most recent manifestation of a sea change that has happened uh, in, in the wake of the, the um, uh, credit crunch in 2008. Since then, we've had a series of uh, half a dozen, really, um, election results that have been completely anomalous with much of what has happened in, in, the, in, in the last uh, 50 years, starting with the 2010 election. The electorate not really wishing to give any party a mandate. You know, the, the, the centre um, 
is, is no longer holding. And the centre uh, for us, even those of you who live in Scotland, the centre in British politics is Westminster. And the Westminster consensus that you have to fight everything from the centre uh, is crumbling. You know, the, 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 the uh, Liberal Democrats took it for granted that their voters would accept them going into coalition with the Tories, despite the fact that many people voted for them to stop the Tories in the first place. They took it for granted. Uh, they didn't have to worry about that, you know. And the Labour Party here in Scotland took it for granted that they could always rely on their vote to come out, even if they, you know, got on stage with the Tories during the, the uh, uh, referendum campaign, you know. The Labour Party, again, took it for granted that the, the, the Blairite uh, maxim, you must fight from the centre, was, was so deeply founded that they could not only allow one member, one vote in the election of an ex-leader, but they could actually invite supporters to take part in that. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, people like John Rental wrote articles saying what a great idea this is. Rental's now writing nothing but anti-Corbyn stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, wrote what a great idea, and it is a great idea to, en to engage people in politics. And it is a great idea to, that, uh, you know, a left-wing British political party should be the largest left-wing party in Europe. That's a positive thing. I don't know what they're so afraid of. So you've got to see the election of Corbyn in the context of, of, of that. And obviously the, and the, the big one, the real uh, 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 game changer, obviously, is Brexit. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, the, the, the Westminster consensus took it for granted that people would vote, maybe narrowly, but would vote to stay in. And they've misjudged all the way down the line. Something somewhere is wrong. And my sense about what it is that's wrong is that people are tired of politicians who only offer to manage the economy. People need, they don't just want it, but they need a transformation. They need real change. They want... They want Genuine change, not just the promise of, of trickle-down economics. And you can see it in the United States of America. Obviously, Donald Trump is an obvious example of that. You know, the, 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 in the sense that um, the Republican Party have lost control of the agenda completely. The, the, um, the uh, Democrats almost lost control of their agenda with Bernie Sanders. They only just managed to, to hold that back. But, you know, you've got to remember, Hillary Clinton, whatever you think about her, uh, and I would rather she won, because of the obvious, for obvious reasons, she's the most unpopular presidential candidate ever. You know, that's how sick people are of uh, Washington politics, you know, the equivalent of Westminster politics. She's the most uh, unpopular candidate ever, apart from Donald Trump. <laughs> so, fortunately... <laughs> So I'm just, I'm just giving this as an example. These things aren't just happening anomalous. You know, what's happened here in Scotland it can't be divorced from what's happening with the Labour Party, what happened with Brexit. The, the, the censor cannot hold anymore. The public are looking for change. And those of us of a progressive bent, the challenge for us is to make sure that that change is progressive and not regressive. And it's not people like Nigel Farage that get to set the, what the future is like. And people like Donald Trump. It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. But the, but the mistake, I think, that the Labour Party, that the PLP make in the present situation is they think that this is about the next election. It's not about the next election. It's about whether or not ordinary party members have any agency in a political party or whether we're, they're just taking the piss out of us. And that's, what, that's, that's my sense of it. Mm -hmm. And bear in mind the Conservatives were so, you know afraid of allowing their members to have a say that they sent Andrea Leadsom into the room with the revolver and the bottle of whiskey. <laughs> rather, than, rather than take a chance 
that it might turn out. I mean, they must have had a sense of that. Because otherwise they would have just, you know, allowed it to happen, allowed Theresa May to be crowned. They must have had a sense that their membership also was no longer willing to just take a centrist line. You know, everywhere you look, the, the, you know, everything that uh, is solid is, uh, what's that line? Anyway, um, you know, think that, that, that there's a process going on right across, uh, certainly across Europe and across North America. And what we're involved in the Labour Party at the moment is, is trying to get the party to recognise that the Blairite consensus that you can only win elections from the centre is no one's interested in that anymore. Mm -hmm. They want they want that transformation. Well, we've, you've mentioned Brexit on three or four occasions. I mean, um, the rise of the right wing in you know the, you know the USA, mm. the UK, mm. across Europe that must be frightening as well. Yeah, of I mean, course it is. Uh, but w do you what's your take on Brexit? I mean, obviously, I gather you're you're not for it, no. uh, but um, no. you know wh why have 51% of the population, or 51.2 or whatever, voted for something like that. Why has that it's happened? A, it's, a, you know, it's a total pig's ear, isn't it, the whole thing? The whole outcome. I mean, you know, we've, because, you know, I'm, you know I, I'm, a, I'm a person who thinks it's, it's dangerous if you just ignore democracy. If you say that doesn't count. If you just say, oh, well, no, we just have another referendum. You know, that's, that's, that's only going to exacerbate the anger of those people who voted for Brexit because they're angry. You know, and uh, I don't think that everybody who voted for Brexit is a racist. I don't think they're necessarily xenophobe, but I do think that it was the the people whose voices are never heard. I mean, I'm in a very strange position. I live in West Dorset. I only have one election I can vote in that is proportional, and that's just been taken away from me. It's the European elections. So there are, you know, millions of us in. England, whose voices really are ignored. 80% of us live in constituencies that never change hands. Where I live in West Dorset, the Tories have held that seat since 1886. But where I come from in Barking, Labour have uh, been in power since 1931. And, you know, don't tell me there aren't no Tories in Barking, because some of them are my bloody relatives. So, <laughs> you know, it's not fair either way. And so the, 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 the transition to a more democratic society that you've had here in, in uh, Scotland due to devolution, We've not experienced that. We've kind of been denied that. And we're in a difficult situation because one of the problems that we have is the power of London. I mean, you know, understand it up here, but if we had an English parliament, we'd have that London would be even more powerful. So we've got, to, we've got to try and work out another way. Perhaps, you know, most of our regions, uh, as regard to the European Union, there's nine regions in England. Most of them are about the same size as Scotland, around four and a half, five million. So, you know, there's a tax base there. If they had sort of Hollywood-style powers, we could start devolving power. Because, you know, take back power from Europe, great. But what about take back power from the, from the bond markets? Mm -hmm. And take back power, you know, from the from the multinational corporations. So, so and, federalism you know, bring, is, is a sort of. Way I don't know why the Labour Party isn't talking about federalism. I just don't yeah. understand why they're not. Because, uh, you know, I think it it, ma it makes a lot of sense in addressing the issues that were left untended and 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 came to the fore during the Brexit campaign. You know, mm -hmm. uh, to find a way to to rebalance uh, the the uh, division of resources within England mm -hmm. by you know because. You know, we're one of the poorest parts of the UK is Cornwall. You know, there's people down there living on, uh, you know, on uh, uh, very seasonal work. A lot of rural poverty down there. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in the southwest that we have in, would have in common with the northwest and northeast. You know, we could balance up against London. But these are sort of progressive 20th, 21st century ideas looking forward. I worry about 
uh, Jeremy, that he's a kind of 20th century Labour man. And the kind of, you know, we need to be reaching out to people. We need to be working with everybody that we can work with on this and thinking forward. Because you can see what happens to a political party that becomes tribalist. You can mm -hmm. see what's happened to Labour here in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And we can't afford to go down that route if we're, you know, if we're to retain the ability to represent ordinary working people. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. You know, Labour, Labour has fires to fight on a number of different fronts. And, and this will be happening even without Corbyn. If, you know, if any of the other candidates had won uh, last year, these problems would still be there. If they, you know, swung back towards Blairism, it wasn't going to, it wouldn't have made an ape of a difference. We'd still mm -hmm. be having these problems. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't have a simple answer, but at the moment we're just trying to clear that space to the left of the perceived centre, uh, the Blairite idea of what the centre is, and plant some flags there and see if we can gather some people there and say, look, this is the kind of society we want to live in. This is the way we want to go forward. And it's very hard to do that in the sort of febrile atmosphere while we're all standing around the table and on the table there's a loaded gun of Article 50. And who's going to fire Article 50 and how are we going to deal with that? And what, what responsibility we have to, do, to the majority of people who voted for that? You know, it would be hard to have this conversation in normal times for the Labour Party, but in these times it's really, really difficult. And my hope is that the party doesn't split, that we're able to resolve this stalemate, and that we're able to start to, to build a, a new consensus around a, a, a left-wing idea that, that you know, recognises that, that the economy has to work for everybody. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's not worthy of, uh, of what a Labour Party would do. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of conscious that we're running out of time. In fact, oh, we've kind of come run, on. We've Where's kind anyone going to go? This is the last time. gig. We're, we're going we're gonna to have another song yeah. and, and also some questions. Yeah, um, yeah right. Let's do that. Uh, let's, let's, do, you, do a song. Do, do a song, song about song. Then, do a song about songwriting. Yeah. All right. Do do a song about songwriting. Because we've got enough of this politics, haven't we? Yeah. Also, I also would like to mention, like, you're playing Summerhall tomorrow night. I am, yeah. With Joe Henry. I and am. that's going to be the uh, first of many gigs that you're doing together. You've got a new record out. I have. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that after the song, and then we'll get uh, some questions from you guys. Well, another 15 minutes or so, are you all right with that? It's all right, You're not going anywhere. If, if anyone has to run off and get a train, then we won't be offended, but... We understand. Yeah. Or a beer. A train or a beer, mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm easy. Let me see if I can get this one to go just a little bit there. So yeah, this is uh, this is a song about the crisis in masculinity. A lot of women giggling nervously there. <laughs> basically, you know, oh, you'll get it. It's really easy. It's, basi it's basically about um, how women have refused to become domestic goddesses, rightly so. And it's about time we men resisted the temptation to be a do-it-yourself demon. Come out of the shed, put down the power tools, and let's admit to ourselves we're never going to be as good as our dads were at that shit. <laughs> so why pass the guilt on to our kids, huh? So that's what I've written this song about. It's called Handyman Blues. I'm never going to be the handyman around the house. My father was So don't be asking me to hang a curtain rail For you because 
That screwdriver business just gets me confused It takes me half an hour to change your fuse And when I flick the switch the light's all blue I'm not your handyman You better believe it baby Don't be expecting me to put up shelves or build a garden shed but I can write a song that tells the world how much I love you instead Now I'm not any good at pottery so let's lose a T and just shift back the E and I'll find a way to make my poetry build a roof over our head You see what I did there? Yeah? Birds love it. Birds love it. <laughs> Trust me, guys. I know it looks like I'm just sat here reading the paper. But these ideas I'll turn to gold dust later. Cause I'm a writer, not a decorator I'm not your handyman Because I'm a writer and an agitator I'm not your handyman Whoa! <laughs> you big softies! So just uh, quickly before we go into some questions from these guys, yeah. tell us about the new record, uh, Shine a Light, and oh, the collaboration. Yeah, yeah just uh, just some railroad songs. Um, I've been writing a book last uh, couple of years, that uh, should be out next summer, that looks at how the guitar came to the fore in British music. Lonnie Donegan was the first a British musician to get in the charts playing guitar. How did that happen? You know, if you look in the histories of British rock and roll, Rock Island Line, 1956, Donegan, is almost like a singular incident like the creation of the universe. It didn't work like that. I'm trying to put it into its context. So there's a lot of railroad songs. Donegan was more or less playing Leadbelly's repertoire, a lot of train songs. Why are there a lot of train songs? The train really had a hugely transformative effect on humanity when it, when it arrived. It, it was much more, the connectivity was like a thousand times more than the internet. So I wanted to make a song that, you know, talked about these songs. I mean, you know, rail, railroad songs are so much more metaphorical um, in the sense that, you know, um, Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash is not a prison song, it's a train song. It's all about the train. You can hear the train whistle. It's the train that has agency in that song. Not Johnny, not the prison. He shot a man in Reno, yeah, but it's the train that actually does it. So in order to make a train record, me and Joe Henry got on a train in Chicago and we stayed on the train all the way to Los Angeles, 65 hours and three days and two and a half thousand miles. And every time the train stopped, we jumped off, ran in the waiting room and recorded one of these songs. And so uh, if you have a look at my website, www.billybragg.co.uk, you can see a little map of the routes and uh, see some videos of the songs. And we're, we're doing our first gig tomorrow, tomorrow at uh, Summerhall. Uh, to do a bit of promo for it and uh, 
very much looking forward to it. Yeah. How does it feel to sing someone else's songs? The same with the Woody Guthrie and Mermaid Avenue albums as well. As such a sort of personal writer, how do you inhabit someone else's writing or their, their lines? Well, it, it, helps their to be characters? A, it helps to do it as a collaboration because mm -hmm. you get someone else's perspective and you kind of meet them halfway. Uh, and uh, it's good, you know, um, there's a cycle of, uh, you know, album tour, album tour, album tour. You can't really do that anymore. Uh, um, it's just, it just takes, you know, it really does take now to make a proper album and promote it. It does take a lot of blood and, uh, and silver. And, you know, it's just not feasible to keep doing that. So you have to do something in between. That's why I'm writing a book. Mm -hmm. You know, and doing it, doing a few other things. I'm really just trying to keep myself engaged. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I earn a living doing the thing that I really, really love. And if that's not, not the definition of success, I don't know what it is. You know, if you can do that, we're very, very fortunate to do that. I'm just trying to keep interest, doing interesting things and hoping that people will be interested in them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's have some questions. Yay to that, by the way. Um, right, yeah. there's a hand up there. Can we, well is done, there a mic microphone somewhere? There is, I've got a microphone probably, have I? Oh, no, there, there we go. Let's go there for Mark, if you can. He's off. He's, he's off again. He's around. Right. We've got to keep him fit. Yeah. We want the next question yeah. from up there. That's right. right. Yeah. Hi, yeah. Um, my first job was uh, in the early 80s and off Ripple Road at Barking UBO. Crikey. And at the time, there were, I used to get on the bus with people going to Dagenham, and there was a, sense, a real sense of despair. Um, and now, I know you, you, you sing to us that you keep faith and you're positive and inspiring. But do you go back to your home sometimes and, and feel that sense of despair, which I know I feel when I think back in 1981 when I started in Dole Office, there were still 16 years of Tory government to come. Yeah, the story everyone knows is that London voted in order to remain. Well, Barking and Dagenham voted 67% leave. And that's, you know, that, that's a, a town that, when I left school, 40,000 people worked Fords making cars and there's probably half that many again working in ancillary companies like my dad did that's all gone They don't make cars anymore 4,000 people work for Fords now making bits for engines as they sell somewhere else Barking also has the cheapest housing anywhere in London So anybody coming to the capital whether they come from here or from abroad wherever they're heading there So the pressures that are on uh, social security uh, social services there are, are phenomenal and people aren't getting much help but a couple of years ago the British National Party uh, stood 12 candidates for the uh, local council and they won every single seat. If they had stood a full slate, they'd have taken the council and had 70 million pounds to spend over five years in East London would have been unspeakable. But um, what happened was uh, when the next election came, a lot of us were active, a lot of us went down there, but the British National Party needed another 12 seats to take the council and they failed to win those 12 seats and they lost every seat they had. And that kind of gives me encouragement. I think that we can trust our neighbours because what happened was the people in Barking and Dagenham having been so angry with Tony Blair saying the white working class, we can take them for granted, they've got nobody else to vote for, were so angry that they put those arseholes in. But when those people saw, they looked into the face of racist fascism and saw it for what it was and they threw them, threw them out again. And the great thing about it was the leader, Barnbrook, his ward the woman who beat him was disqualified because she was a lollipop lady and you can't stand for the council and be a council employee so they it's true so they ran it again when nobody was there when none of us were there working on a quiet wet afternoon he still lost so that's why i'm optimistic i think you know it's times are hard but we shouldn't you know when when, when there are headlines about barking and dagenham being the racist capital of britain 
you know, that just made me all the more determined because I know that my hometown is no more racist than any of your hometowns. We just had those tow rags knocking on the door, winding neighbour up against neighbour. And wherever we find those people, we have to confront them. And if we can beat them in Barking and Dagenham, we can beat them anywhere. That's my sense. Cool. Thank you. Uh, another question? Someone uh, stick their hand in the air? Yes, this lady here. Do you still have your porter stack? No, but I have a very bad back. <laughs> I used to have this thing called a porter stack, which was like an uh, a amplifier on a, uh, it was on a frame of a backpack. And it had two speakers up here and a big electric thing. And it had big, big batteries, very heavy batteries. And uh, it was a fabulous... Uh, I said to my manager, why do I have to do this? He said, Bill, it's one of those it's a, people will remember. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking about you, love. <laughs> And I remember too, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I can't really straighten myself out. It's a terrible thing. Because it's like a backpack, I don't know if you obviously you know what a backpack is, and it tightens around your diaphragm. So you can imagine what it's like trying to sing with it on. But people loved it. Can you bring it down? Can you, you know, can you put it on, bring it on TV? I have to tell you, I left it on a cross-channel ferry. Another question? Anyone? Go on, don't be shy. Yes. Oh, there's, well, she's there. Sorry, mate. Sorry. In Another second. woman over there. Hi. Um, we've heard a lot about political stuff tonight, but mm. for me, and I think probably quite a lot of my generation, you're the king of the love song, I think. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, and, and I wondered whether, which is one of your songs that pulls on your heartstrings most still? Well, that's a tough one. That is a really tough one. Um, I mean, that's why I called the book A Lover Sings, for exactly the reason that you're talking about. It's because I, I, I have, obviously, I'm known for my political songs, and that's become even more so since people stopped using political, listening to political songs. They went over the event horizon. Um, and while I don't mind being known as a political songwriter, I'm totally cool with that, it's easy for people to dismiss me as that, so I know it's, it's just all political. So I want to put my love songs to the fore. It's only, unfortunately, the political situation we find ourselves in now that Vic and I decided to address these issues, so I hope you'll forgive us that. But for me, it's song, I suppose it's songs like uh, Must I Paint You a Picture, uh, Valentine's Day is Over, uh, oh, uh, what's that? Um, there's a song that, no, just, it's just uh, 14th of February is a song that people use as their first dance at weddings, which is really lovely. It makes me feel like I'm part of it, you know, because it's very personal to me and my partner because it's about the fact that we met each other before we knew that we were going to be partners, if you know what I mean, you know. I was best man at a wedding. <laughs> Sounds like an episode of EastEnders, doesn't it? <laughs> Now, the great thing is, whenever we're together and anyone says, how did you first meet? <laughs> it was nothing to do with me. Let me just tell you, the whole thing falling apart, it was absolutely nothing to do with me. But it's weird how those things work. So, yeah. So she, and she, um, she gave me a, uh, a poem. It's a poem by Christina Rossetti, which is called something like, I wish I could remember the first time I met you. And she gave it to me on uh, Valentine's Day, which is beautiful. And I was in the studio that day and I had this tune that I'd actually come up with 
trying to keep our baby son attentive, it was just a lot of movement in my fingers. And I found the more I moved my fingers, the more he looked at him and he didn't cry or he didn't, you know, and he went to sleep. So I took that song and put the lyrics to it. So it kind of... Would you want me to play it? Yeah. All right. It'll probably have to be the last thing now because it's... We're yeah. going to get in trouble. You're all going to miss Match of the Day. Good thing is, the thing about these things, you should always, when you do these things like this, you should always play one song you're not absolutely sure if you know how to play it, that you haven't tried before. So I'm kind of like, I'm going up on the high wire for you, baby, you all right? <laughs> okay, so if I make a fool of myself. I'm not even sure how it ends. It goes like this. I wish that I could remember the first moment that we met if only I could remember that sweet moment that we met if I knew then that I would spend the rest of my life with you I imagine I would have held your gaze a little longer when first our eyes met did it rain or did sunshine attend our first meeting what words were said what weight given to that first meeting my diary doesn't help I don't even mention your name until that summer when bloomed the seed sown on the first day that we met I know the place I know the date when it happened yet in my mind the scene I recall is imagined if we grow old I'm sure there will be moments that we will not forget but I would remember something of the moment that we met. Whoa! Thank you very much. We had a great time. Thanks for coming. Thanks for hanging. Come and see us in the sign if you like. Someone get me a beer. Ladies and gents, Billy Bragg. Come on.
More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.